1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to go. I want to talk to you about liberty, limiting our liberties and why Christians should not do what they have every right to do. So by way of introduction, uh, in, in chapter 6 verse 12, we're memorizing a verse uh, this month, and that is, all things are lawful unto me, but all things uh, edify not. All things uh, are not expedient. All things um, uh, uh, are, are not good for me. They, I will not be brought under the power even of good things. And when we, when we start to look at that verse, we look at, okay, why does God say that? Why does God impress on the heart of the believer that not everything that I'm allowed to do is good for me. So when we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, a very important chapter on Christian maturity uh, uh, that I want to focus on this morning, actually this whole month as we are looking at different um, angles of this thing. And I'm talking about personal liberties and personal liberties are one of those things that are some of the most precious things any human can possess. The right to free speech, the right for the freedom of worship and the freedom of movement, the freedom from slavery, freedom from government oppression. By the way, every one of us, every time we vote or we don't vote, we are allowing more and more government oppression or we are restricting it. Do not forget your government is not your best friend. I don't care where you live. I don't care what is, what, who's in power. They are not your friend. They are an enemy to freedom unless it's limited, unless that government is small. And so the rights of people are always at risk until the people take it very serious that, you know what, we need to have um, uh, the, the, the rights back in the people. And I'm not getting on a political stage here at the moment, but I'm just telling you, do not just turn over all of the decisions to the government because they're not your friend. They're there, most of them have never worked a full-time job in their life. And they don't know what to do to, to um, uh, adjust and to help you. They're going to take guesses. And my heart's burden is that we participate in government. We limited government. That's just my little thing there because our personal liberties are at stake, folks. And the truth is uh, people have fought long and hard to have the freedom that we have today. But there is another freedom. There is another freedom that excels all others, and that is the freedom from sin. Folks, we're not free from sinning, not yet. One of these days I will be free from sinning. But I am free from sin. I'm free from sin's grip, from sin's power over me. And as Christians, we are free from sin's damnation because sin does have a consequence. The wages of sin is death. And death for somebody, if, if you're not saved, death goes from bad to worse. You may die in this life, but you're going to wish you could die in the next in a place called hell. And Romans 6:18 says we have been being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. We were made free from sin. That's the greatest freedom this ever that ever can be experienced. And Christians brag about it. We uh, we brag about it being the the the, uh, the most important kind of freedom. Uh, people all over the world in poverty, even people in slavery, people under incredible oppression, when they get born again, they are made free. And I'll talk about that more in a few minutes. So Christians have been made free by one person, Jesus Christ. 
Romans chapter 8, I'm just going to quote it for you. We looked at some of these verses last week. Romans chapter 8, verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. You see, no born-again believer is working hard to be free anymore. I don't work at all to be free. Uh, Jesus Christ broke the cycle of sin and death. And uh, how did he do that? Well, the infinite Son of God, 2,000 years ago, became a limited man. And as a man, he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. Uh, no church, no priest, no pastor can do what Jesus Christ alone did. God himself lived perfectly all the requirements, fulfilled all the requirements of all the laws of God. Every one of them, not just the Ten Commandments, but every last law that was ever written in the Bible. And when he died at the hands of wicked politicians, never forget that. The hands of wicked religious people, never forget that. Don't worry, don't worry about all the bad people. Worry about the, quote, good people who say that they're on your side. Jesus died at the hands of those politicians and religionists. He, took, he, he died as a perfect man. And then he took all of my failures and took all of your failures onto himself and he took the blame. He personally paid for all of our failures, every last one of them. That's why when Jesus said in John chapter 8, the Son therefore shall make you free, he could finish with saying you're free indeed because he makes you perfectly free. That's why Christians get excited. That's why we talk about Jesus so much because he reaches into the deepest, darkest holes of our life and he frees us. Now, um, uh, let me just move on here. What do we do with this freedom now? That's what we're focusing on this month. Look there in 1 Corinthians 6.12 again. Look at it. 1 Corinthians 6.12. I said we'll start in chapter 9, but I want to go back to verse chapter 6 real briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. That's our memory verse. All things now are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me but I will not be brought under the power of any. Let's pray. Father, bless the thoughts and the truths of this word, this book, to the hearers this morning. God, help me be a blessing and encouragement and a help. It's not by accident, Lord, that, that our world is, is reeling under um, uh, incredible restrictions. And it's kind of funny. Uh, the world is, is uh, uh, being, being told what to do or not to go, uh, what to wear, and you know, uh, Lord, there's a, there's a limit on our freedom. But as Christians, there's, there's a different look about our freedoms, and that is there are things that we ought to limit on our own for the sake of others. And that's what, Lord, I pray that every person that's hearing this message this morning would take to heart and realize, Lord, what are you asking of me? What, what, what thing that I'm free to do do I need to walk away from so that I can do your will? And I pray, God, that you would help us, God, whatever the cost. We're called to be living sacrifices. We're called to, to live a life that costs us something now. It costs us, costs us nothing to get saved. It costs you everything. But it does cost us to be a servant. So make servants out of your people through these messages, please, in Jesus' name. And if somebody's not saved listening to this message, God, I pray they realize there is freedom for them. There's freedom not in a, not in a prayer, not in a a religious act, a religious duty. Uh, there, it's in Christ, and only Jesus saves. I pray that they would ask him, desperately cry out to him for salvation. Ask for the free gift of eternal life. This morning, right now, 
nothing else happens, if somebody would get saved, that'd be enough. That'd be perfect, Lord. So bless all that's said and done and the hearing and the doing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I asked a question. I said, what do we do with all of this freedom? We got choices. There's always choices. So he says there in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. What he's basically saying, if you and I were to say it, it would be all things that are lawful. It's not lawful for me to go and kill somebody. It's not lawful for me to steal and rob somebody's wallet. It's not saying that all things are lawful. It's now that I'm saved, all things that are lawful are lawful. It's okay for me. If the Bible doesn't forbid it, then I'm okay doing it. And that was what I hammered on last week, and that is we are free. God has given us a freedom, not a freedom to sin. But you know what? I have a freedom now. And in this freedom, I can do a lot of things, but not all of them are good. At least not for me. Not all of them are the best thing for others. So uh, go back and listen to last week's message to get the base of this thing. Not everything that I'm free to do now that I'm saved is good for me to do. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, everything that is okay to do, I am free to do. And so somebody's, you know, honestly, you can go around and you can point the finger and say somebody shouldn't be doing this or that. Uh, you know, if it's not forbidden in the Bible, then what do you say? What do you say? I just know this. I got to worry about myself. I got to worry about what is something that is that, that I may be doing that is hindering God's will in my life. And that is where we're going to talk. Because honestly, it may not be the best for me. Uh, somebody says, does it say in the Bible you can't smoke? No, it doesn't say you can't smoke. Like I said last week, the only person I find smoking is the devil in the Bible. So I don't know why you would want to be like him. But it doesn't say thou shalt not smoke. It's funny. Uh, so uh, if, you, if you smoke, will you go to hell? Not at all. Not at all. But it's not good for you. It's not the right thing to do. So it may not be the best thing just because you can do it. And nothing, this is the point. As, as Eric pointed out, that last point there about, I will not be brought under the power of any. That says that nothing should limit the will of God in my life. Nothing should come between me and what I should be doing for God. Not even good things. As a matter of fact, it should be the other way around. Nothing should keep me from being in church. I, I, church should be the thing that interrupts what I'm doing on a Sunday. Church, reading my Bible, should interrupt my breakfast. It should interrupt my time with my pillow. My walk with God is the right thing to do. And if anything else, even good, is it, is it illegal to sleep? No. Is it illegal to have breakfast? No. But not just because I can stay in bed doesn't mean that I should stay in bed when I should be at church, when I should be walking with God, getting my heart right. So everything that others, you know, your boss wants you to come in early and say, you know, I've, I've been coming in early all this week. I need to have some time with God. I'll come in at the regular time. Now, the boss may be upset, but you've got to be able to say, I'm letting good things stop right things, better things, which is walking with God. So just a simple illustration there. So Paul, and this is the point, Paul limits his freedom. Throughout his Christian life, he gave up his rights so that even good things would not take control of his life. You know, Paul stayed single. I think he sometimes thought about it and wished he could get married. But who'd want to marry somebody who was constantly in prison? <laughs> you know, he stayed single so that he could go to prison and not have to worry about his wife taking care of the kids and finances and all that stuff. 
I think he stayed single. It's not wrong to be married. As a matter of fact, it's great to be married. It's not illegal. It's not against the law to be married. But he stayed single. He limited his freedom so that he could win somebody to Christ, so that he could be in prison. You know, prisoners don't go walking in the market street. He normally met people face to face in the markets. But he couldn't reach those, uh, couldn't only reach those. He had to reach those who were in the deepest, darkest pits of, of hell on earth in the prisons uh, all over Europe. So Paul limited his freedom. He often, you know, he often hid his Roman citizenship when he was caught preaching. And when he was thrown into prison, he should have said, you're, 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 you're unjustly treating a Roman citizen. He didn't actually said that. He actually allowed them to put him in prison, put him in prison so that he could go witnessing in prison. They didn't just let people come into prison, sit down and go from cell to cell like maybe they do today. I'm telling you, Paul limited his freedoms. He was free, and yet he limited himself. All Paul, Paul's life is a life of suffering. Paul, uh, God even said in Acts chapter 9, Jesus said, uh, I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Why? Why, why would Paul allow all that to happen? Why would Paul limit himself for others? He did it because Christian maturity requires us limiting our freedom. I don't like when anybody tells me not to do something. But I'm supposed to, as a mature Christian, I'm supposed to tell me I'm not supposed to do something. That's what it means to be a man. Real manhood knows I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to go. A lot of teenagers will never grow up because nobody's ever telling them, be a man and say, no, I will not go that way. I will not talk that way. I will not look that way. That's maturity. If you want a nanny state, if you want a country that has CCTVs everywhere and you want everybody being told what they can and cannot do, go right ahead and go with this program. But if you want to have a country full of mature, self-motivated and, and, and completely safe men, teach them to have character, teach them that it is their responsibility to limit their freedoms. That's a safe country. And that's a country full of Christians who are mature and they're grown up. So uh, why do we do that? Because there are more important things than our rights. And they're called souls. So we're going to get to the message. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 now. I want to talk to you about what's more important than our rights. Now, 1 Corinthians 9.19 here, it says this, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. What a statement. Paul says, as a Christian, I am free. He starts with this great fact. No one controls me now, Paul says. No human owns me. No one tells me what to do. Christ made me free from all forms of human bondage. You know, even if a person is physically a slave, they're actually, if they're born again, they're freer than their boss. They're freer than their owner. They are free. And Paul starts off and he says, though I be free from all men. What a statement. But then he gets to verse, uh, the last half of that. As I just said, uh, let me just make a statement here. Throughout history, there's been abuse, all kinds of different kinds of slavery still going on right now, by the way. And uh, uh, Jesus Christ came along and made us free from all human bondage. Uh, you know, the banks may own you. Your boss may own you. Um, uh, just um, there, are, there is, there is uh, oppression uh, in lots of places in the world. But Christ makes 
anybody who's, uh, who's, who repents and believes the gospel makes them absolutely free. And it sounds great. I no longer, nobody has control of my life anymore. That's a great, that, that, that sounds like you're, you're 19 again. You know, good, I can just do my own things. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? But yet as a Christian, I choose to make myself a servant. Look at the last part of verse 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all. I make myself a servant. Paul saying, I humble this life of mine lower than other people, and I allow them to run my life. I allow them to. I submit to unfair rules and even abuses because I've chosen to be a servant like Jesus was. The greatest person ever was a servant of all. His name was Jesus. And Paul says, I now choose to be a servant of absolutely every body I meet. Paul says, I could walk away and do whatever I want, be what I want to be. But I won't do that. Not now that I'm saved. I choose not to do that. I choose instead to become like those that I want to win to faith in Christ Jesus because it is that important that I humble myself and go low so that they might be made rich, so they might be saved. And Paul gives some examples here. Look at verse 20. I think this is absolutely mind-blowing. Verse 20, uh, he says, so that I might gain the more in verse 19. And verse 20 gives some examples. Under the Jews, I became a what? I became a Jew, as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, I became as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. We'll talk about these in a moment. Verse 21, to them that are without law. You ever heard of an outlaw? That's where it came from, criminals. To those who are criminals, living as without law. And then he makes sure, he says, I'm not going to live without the law. Don't misunderstand me but being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, but not in front of them. Watch this. That I might gain them that are without law. Verse 22, to the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made, I am forged, I am pressed. Watch this. Into all things, to all men, that, by all, that I might by all means save some. One of the greatest verses to memorize and live for the Christian is to allow God to make you into whatever he needs you to be to win somebody else to Christ. And I'll just finish with verse 23, and this I do for the gospel's sake. You ever met a reporter and the reporter is, has maybe had their house uh, uh, stones thrown uh, through windows in their house, their, their car has been firebombed, uh, their life is at risk. You meet a reporter like that, that's kind of rare because nobody ever puts their life at risk anymore, but old time reporters used to go after a story and they went after it and went after it even to their own hurt because the truth mattered. Where's that today? But those old time reporters knew for the truth's sake, I've got to find out. I've got I've to know and expose what's going on and tell people the truth. You know what Paul said? I've got to sacrifice my life for the gospel's sake. The world doesn't know what we know. And how are they going to hear unless we sacrifice? So Paul gives some examples. He says to the Jew, if I'm going to win a Jew, I've got to become as a what? A Jew. Now, some people don't like that. I get so upset. I get throw up sick at Christians who have no time for the Jews. You better wake up. Paul was willing to go to hell for the Jews. What are you willing to do?
greatest privilege you may ever have is to sit next to a Jew and give them the gospel. Say, well, they're not real Jews. Slap yourself around the, uh, around the block. Nationally, they're Jews. They're not saved, maybe wicked as, as hell. They may be living an ungodly life. But Paul says to a Jew, I became as a Jew. What does that mean? He, uh, when he was around the Jewish people, he talked like them. He used their language. He ate their food. He did not eat bacon, <laughs> not around them. He respected their culture and their traditions. He respected them as much as is possible. Why? To earn the right to give them the gospel, to win them to Christ. Paul had left Judaism. He stopped being a Jew the moment he got saved. He became a Christian. He didn't want to be a Gentile. He wanted to follow Christ. And so when he dealt with a Jew, he humbled himself and he talked eye to eye. He didn't talk down. He didn't, didn't mock. He didn't um, uh, belittle. He didn't act arrogant like most Christians I meet today. Everybody's got their arrogant doctrines and their arrogant attitudes about everybody else that's not like them. Paul wouldn't like that. As knowledgeable, as, 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 as theological, as, as um, uh, passionate as Paul was with doctrine and theology, when he sat down with a Jew, it was as if they were family. He wanted to earn the right to give him the gospel. That's just, just, that's his goal. If he ignored all the Jewish traditions and the feast days, the Jews never would have listened to one word he said. If he only mocked them and said the traditions were all worthless and stupid, he would have been ignored and probably stoned. When he was carried, when, when he was being torn apart because uh, he was in the temple and somebody made an accusation against him, it was false. And uh, Lysias, um, a uh, Roman centurion, got in there, grabbed him, carried him out of the crowd. And on the steps, he turned, he turned to um, uh, uh, Lysias says, let me speak for a minute. And then it says there in Romans, in, in Acts, I believe, chapter 21, he, it says he looked at those people and he spoke in the Hebrew tongue. He says, I love you. I want to talk to you as a Jew who's found Christ. That's what he did. That's what he did. Um, question, how far are you willing to go to win somebody who's different than you? If you want to win somebody from Scotland, you're going to have to learn to like the haggis. I don't like haggis, and I'm not in Scotland. But you're also going to have to probably, if you're going to win the Scottish, you're going to have to learn to like and play golf going to have to learn about a game called curling not hurling but curling and probably you might already like it but you're going to have to like hill walking because everybody loves hill walking over in Scotland do we live in Ireland do you know the Irish love it when someone who's not Irish honors the Irish language and learns it honors the Irish flag and honors and prays for the Irish government you know that's respect it is right for us to learn Irish history we live in Ireland we should know Irish history I have seven books on Irish history you know one that actually made sense to me was called Irish History for Dummies. I guess it matched. But I wanted to learn Irish history. I grew up with American history. I want to know the history of this nation because I want to win the nation. Because I want to be able to talk eye to eye, heart to heart, face to face, toe to toe with the Irish. If you lived in England, you better learn to yell, God save the Queen, if she's passing by. That's what you're supposed to do. See, we've got a lot of arrogant people who will not humble themselves and become like the people they're trying to win. If you lived in America, I guarantee you, you should celebrate July 4th if you ever want to give an American the gospel. 
Americans love it when somebody says, oh, it's Independence Day. I don't care if you're British or not. Get you some fireworks and go, whoo! <laughs> you should learn to eat to like corn on the cob. You should try homemade grits, fried okra, four-alarm chili. Those are American things, hot dogs with chili. Say, why would you do that? If you want to win an American, become as an American. That's, you see, well, everybody wants to move to America, and, 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 and what we forget, Americans need the gospel. And if somebody's ever going to win them, earn their respect of you. To the Jew, Paul became a, a Jew. Uh, a few days ago, I met a guy from Egypt. He's been here for about five years. Guess what we talked about? Egypt. I asked him about the most beautiful places there and whether I and my wife should go and visit. And he said, yes, yes, yes. It was just, he just beamed at talking about all these places all over Egypt that were worth seeing. I asked him what his favorite food was that he misses since being over here from his family. And in the end, I got to spend about 35, 40 minutes with him. You know what he took when I gave to him? I gave him a Gospel of John in Arabic. And when I gave it to him, you know what he did? He opened it right there and started on page one. And he kept reading it, and he kept reading it as I got ready to leave. And I said, thanks, it was great to meet you, so on and so forth. I walked away. He held on to that thing. Why did he do it? If I just walked in and says, you know, let me talk to you about God, Psh, apples and oranges. He has no idea who I am, what I am, so on and so forth. But I earned the right. I became as somebody who wanted to love Egypt. I'm not going to Egypt as a missionary, but if I ever were to go to Egypt, I would learn everything I could about their history. I'd learn everything about their culture. I would want to walk through the streets as an Egyptian and tell them about Christ. Uh, to the, Paul goes on and he says, so if you met a Jew, would you look down on him? Would you go, oh, that stupid hat. All oh, those Jews over there always. Listen, let me tell you, they're a lost soul that needs their Messiah. And if you ever got a chance to meet somebody like that, it ought to be the greatest privilege in your life to become as a Jew. You, you, you're worshiping a Jewish Messiah. You're reading a Jewish Bible. And you know what? Jesus is coming back to the Jewish capital, to Jerusalem. Go on there. He says, to the religious, keep going back there in verse 20. To the Jews became I, I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law. I came as under the law. Those are religious people to the very religious, to win those who are trying to keep and obey God's laws, you're going to have to humble yourself from all the freedoms you have in Christ and choose not to work on the Sabbath day. Again, he's using an example. If he ever got to talk to a Pharisee, he couldn't be cutting wood on the Sabbath. He couldn't be doing that. If he's going to witness, if you ever get the chance to witness, and I've got to speak to 13 of them. I'm waiting for number 14. It's been a long time since I've talked to a Catholic priest, an Irish Catholic priest. But every one of them I had great respect for. I sat down. I didn't mock or laugh at any one of them because a lot of what they say is wrong. It's pure hocus pocus. It's, 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 not, it's not scriptural. It's not biblical. It's not from God. It's from old Babylon. But I never once belittled them and made them feel like I was superior to the religious, to that person. I already had read all the books about Catholicism, about the priesthood. I have several books on all, I don't remember how many, 130 different steps you have to go through at the altar there as a priest, running through the genuflection and the, and the, the, the wafer and the, um, the wine and all that stuff. I knew about a lot of that stuff. But you know what? 
I learned about all that, how to talk to him straight up and ask him simple questions and ask him about whether you read, ever read the Bible. And almost every one of them were honest. People say, can you show me where the book of Galatians is? I've never opened a Bible. Not on my own. Not where it wasn't already picked out for me. Paul said to the very religious, I became very religious. Why? To earn the right to give them the gospel. To show them that God loved them and that he loved them. Somebody taught me a long time ago, no one will listen to you until they know you love them. No, they'll listen to you, Craig, until they know you love them. And that is volumes, man. I mean, if I'm just up here speaking into it right now, it's almost an empty room here. But if I'm just speaking in an empty room, I'm sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal if I don't have love. So if you, if you work with a Muslim or you have a classmate who's Hindu, get to know their culture, their religion. Get to know the people, the burdens of the people that you want to win to Christ. Pray for them like you would wish somebody would pray for you if you were the lost person on your way to hell. Paul goes on and he says, you know, there's a group of people out there maybe we forget about, but they're called the lawless. And Paul said when he met a lawless person, he hid his knowledge of the law. He didn't boast about it. Verse 21 goes on to them that are without law. I came as, I came as without law too. Being not without law to God, he didn't stop obeying God's law. But when he, he, you know, he didn't do drugs to win the druggie. But you know what? He studied and he learned if you were going to witness to somebody who's a drug addict, you're going to have to learn about drug addicts. You're going to have to learn about what drives someone, what, what pulls them into that, what keeps them locked into that thing. And not all of it's simple. A lot of, a lot of that is really hard. You're going to have to go and sit with somebody and listen to them, cry with them. If you're ever going to witness and try to help somebody who doesn't go by God's law, you're going to have to sit down and to them be someone who's their equal. How far will you go? You know, these are the immoral and the ungodly. They might look like that. They might be somebody that you just repulse to try to talk to. The drunkards, the rapists, the murderers sitting in prison. Do you ever care about them? God does. As long as they're breathing, God is caring for them. And so to the lawless, to those who live without the law, Paul sat down there and didn't talk about the law, didn't talk about how wrong they were. That's pretty evident. They already know that. You may, they may ask you questions and you may bring up what the Bible says the Bible says, but your goal is not to hammer them. Your goal is to love them. Jesus sat down, even a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, he didn't hammer her at all. He said, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Paul's, our, Paul's a, a great example here. Paul humbled himself. He even got in trouble with the law so that he could reach the lowest people of all the people who broke the law. He won prisoners. He's singing in a prison cell and he's winning all those other prisoners, those hardened criminals. He won them. It's absolutely breathtaking, folks. He never lived like a thief, but he put aside all the arguments about how important the law is, and he focused just on how important the Lord is. He goes on and he says, what do you do about the weak and the sickly? He says, I became as weak. Verse 21, the end of it, uh, sorry, verse 22, to the weak became I as weak. And I don't think that was very hard for him to do because he's probably all bent over. He probably looked 20 years older than he really was because he'd been through enough. He'd been shipwrecked, 
uh, spent a 24 hours in, in the Mediterranean out on a, on a board holding on for dear life. He'd been whipped five times each time, 40 stripes. That's 200 stripes except for one of them. Got 39. Let me just tell you, he probably looked like, like, uh, like near death. And Paul says this, this is to the weak became I as weak. Didn't come in there saying, come on, what's the problem here? No, he sat down and somebody who's going through a hospital visit, going through a time in the hospital there, getting bad news, he'd take him by the hand and just sit there, not say a word. He became just as weak as they were. Uh, Paul allowed sickness to bring him, here's the great truth, Paul allowed sickness to bring him close to understand how to, how to talk to and love and win sick people into the kingdom of God. So whatever Paul was going through, and I'll say this again in a moment, Paul allowed it to forge him into a better soul winner. So you find Paul weak, he says. Paul said he, st he stuttered sometimes. Paul says he, he had uh, poor vision. He says, I have, um, I have ailments. I've got a thorn in my flesh that hinders me from the freedom that I should have as a Christian. He says, but I, through all of that, God's forging me into a better soul winner. How far will you go for just one soul? Paul humbled himself to the level of the people he met. He adapted. He never changed the truth that he preached, but he changed his life to fit in the culture he was trying to win. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 39? He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. You want to find your purpose? Be like Paul and choose to serve. Got some modern examples because I can't miss this. There's a man named Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a fine, upstanding, very, I'd say, very intellectual, uh, uh, Western, civilized gentleman. And God called him to be a missionary in China. He ends up starting a thing called China Inland Mission, which he founded in 1865. And he is well known for adapting to the Chinese in ways like nobody else had ever done. Uh, a lot of other foreign missionaries would go in with a three-piece suit. They would have their gold watch. They would have their hair combed perfectly. They would go up and speak in perfect English, and no Chinese ever came and listened to them for one day. Yet Hudson Taylor made sure that all the missionaries who worked with him ate Chinese food, not the Chinese food like we have here in Ireland, but ate real Chinese food with Chinese instruments. They had to get rid of their forks and knives and spoons. He made sure that the missionaries lived among the Chinese in the Chinese housing, in the paper-thin little boxes that everybody lived in in those days. He made sure that they thoroughly learned the language of the people in whom they ministered and they tried to reach. He made sure that they obeyed local customs and etiquette and that they rejected the protection from the British military that was at their disposal at all times. They lived like Chinese. Taylor himself adapted Chinese dress, which means he shaved his head. He grew a long ponytail in the back there. He wore a long uh, teacher's robe, and, the, and his countrymen called him a madman. The English guys looked at him and said, he's a madman. He's lost his mind. Huh. But Hudson Taylor won thousands and thousands of the Chinese because he earned their respect, because he respected them, and he became just like them. He personally learned the Chinese language. He and another missionary at the time were working so hard to translate the, the different languages. There were different types of, of dialects at that time. 
into Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and they would hand it out. And the only reason why the Chinese took these pieces of paper with, with the Chinese uh, language on it, telling the story of a man named Jesus, the only reason they took it is because they knew Hudson loved them. That's the only reason why they took it. And as they read it, God broke their heart. Hudson Taylor. Um, by the way, Hudson Taylor was only following his master, who had said in John chapter 1, it says, The Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. So God, who is superior, came down to Ireland and became just like us. So if you are on the job and somebody is a little bit different than you, instead of you expecting them to be like you, why don't you humble yourself and serve them, be like them? Another example there, how about marriage problems? You know, if I ever sit down with somebody and they have marriage problems, I can never look down on both of them and say, you know, you shouldn't be having this problem. You guys are stupid. Come on here. Whoever had a problem like that? <laughs> Which is not true. Everybody does. You know, if I'm ever going to help somebody, I have to sit where they sit. I have to try to see what they see. I have to listen to both sides. I have to feel the hurts because there's a hurting situation there. That's how you minister, you serve, you find out. By the way, that works both sides. You know, if each one of those people who are fighting there would just listen to one another, humble themselves and say, you know, I'm not going to worry about my rights, because you may be right. But if you worry about the other person, and you lose your rights, and you serve them, you know, it might just happen both ways, and you might just save a marriage. How about a wayward son or a daughter? You know what I do? When I hear somebody talking about my son won't, won't come home at night, my daughter's living with somebody else, grieves me, I raised her right, and here she is. You know what I do? I grieve with them because I know what it feels like to have wayward children. And I never look down on them. I sit down with them. I, man, there's, there's just tears. There's just, I, all I can say is this, the best efforts are not what you need. You need God. Even the best father of all time, God the Father, has had wayward sons. So you just got you to gotta, you gotta see that when it comes to winning people to Christ and, and saving lives and saving homes, you come hello, you humble yourself. Uh, how about a wife? Thought about this when she's hurting. I'm having to learn this thing. I'm married 35 years and I still haven't learned it. You know, a wife's hurting, I'm supposed to learn what she's feeling. Because I can't understand it, but I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to hurt with her. I'm supposed to not ignore her because she's just an emotional woman. I'm, I'm, I'm her husband. I'm supposed to be the best friend she ever had. And the examples are I have to humble myself and look at her straight in the eye and try to understand her. And I don't know if it's ever possible for a man to understand, but at least she'd like to see me try. How about a drunkard husband? You know what you got to do if you've got a drunkard husband? You need to sit with him while he drinks himself stupid. And then care for his soul and pray for him and listen to him and hold him when he cries. And that's hard. But what are you doing? You're coming down to his level and you're sitting with him and you're loving him. And it might just change his life. Because if you keep hitting him with a, with a, a, a frying pan, if you, keep, if you keep being the aggressor, if you keep beating the fighter, you're not earning anything. What about an unbelieving husband? I'll show you. I mean, I'm giving you some principles here. All of these things I could have given you a hundred scriptures for, but I'm going to show you one. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 
Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, chapter 3. In 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Likewise, ye wives. 1 Peter 3, 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they're rebels. They may be saved or lost. I don't know. But you want to win the argument? You want to win them over? Here's what it says. If they don't obey the word, they may also, without the word, don't fight with your lips. The conversation of your lips can cut and can destroy. Live with the conversation of your life. Watch what he says. If you obey not the word, they also may without the word be won, be conquered by the conversation, the life words of the, of the life conversation of the wise. While they behold your chaste conversation where you limit what you say and how you react, ladies, coupled with fear. You don't fear your husband, but you fear blowing it. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating of the hair and wearing of gold, putting on of apparel. Don't try to manipulate your husband with how you dress and with your body and everything. And most women only know how to manipulate their husband with their body. Don't do that. Verse 4, but let it be the hidden man of the heart that's at work. In that which is not corruptible, even the ornament, the beauty of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, is of great price. Do you want to win an argument God's ways, ladies? Do it by your life's conversation, not your lips. That's how you win a stubborn, hard-headed, grumpy husband. Now, I guarantee sometimes you do need to hit him over the head with something. But that, if that's your lifestyle, it's over. You're never going to win your husband. Your husband will sit at home while you're at church. Your husband will sit in front of the television watching what you don't want him to watch. No matter what you say to him, it's never going to change him until you do it God's way. Humble yourself, ladies. And what about somebody locked in a cult? I mean, I'm just giving you some examples here. Respect them. Don't make fun of them. Don't freak out at them. Engage them with the Bible. Ask them questions. Let them ask you questions. Probably they got caught up in a cult because somebody started ask, answering the questions you never answered. It's called respect, folks. You know what Jesus did? He summarized all this when he said in Matthew 7, 12, he says, therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. What's he saying? Whatever you wish somebody would do to you if you were the drunkard, if you were the lawless, if you were the Jew, if, if you were without hope, without God, why don't you do that to somebody else? Now, I want to, the point is this. The point I want to make is this. It's a long point, but let me do it, summarize this. The souls of whether it's Jewish people or of religious people or immoral people or weak and sickly people, the souls of the English, Nigerian, Congolese, South African, Texan, Canadians, French, Swiss, Swedes, Finnish, Italians, and so on. The souls of all of them are more important than my personal rights. That's the truth. Look back there at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19. Read it again. For though I be free, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Jump down to verse 22. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak I am made I am God puts me into situations and forges I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some Paul was a true winner of souls and I want to be that here's the conclusion 
staying there in, in 1 Corinthians, look at verse 26 and 27, because here's the inclusion. This is what it takes to win people today. Verse 26, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by that by any means when I have preached to others the gospel, I myself should be a castaway. Now this ought to terrify us. Paul lists three things. He says, number one, I need to run. And running takes a lot of effort. And he's, so, he's, he's talking about if you're going to win somebody, you're going to have to put out the effort. Running is not a stroll in the park. It's no picnic. It is heart-pounding. It is stressful. If you run for very long, it hurts. And by the way, it's hard to keep running. You can run for, you know, 50 feet, and then you kind of oh, catch your breath. I so run. I keep running, Paul says. And he has certainty. He says, I know what I'm doing. I know I'm doing the right thing. I'm humbling myself. Nobody else may understand. They may call me a madman for associating like I do with the lawless, for like associating like I do with the Jews, for associating myself with sinners like Jesus did. They may call me a madman, but I so run. Then he goes on and he says, and I fight. Now beware, beware that, that uh, you fight the right, the right enemy. Winning a soul means fighting and making contact with the enemy. Now, I use Scott for an example. Scott, he goes into these uh, uh, rings here and he fights and stuff. And what an what a awful thing if all he had ever done in preparation to fight was just, just fighting a shadow. And then when he gets into the ring against that other person there, the other guy there, and all he does is he just swings into the air and he never makes contact against the, the opponent there. You know what's going to happen to Scott? He's going, damn. All right, just plain and simple. He will not last 30 seconds. And Paul says this, I so fight I not as one that beats the air. I make contact. I make sure what I do hits and hurts. Who are we supposed to hurt? Not the one we're trying to win, but the spirit behind him. Wouldn't it be nice if in your home the devil felt hurt instead of everybody in your home feeling hurt? Wouldn't it be nice if when you, when, when, you, when you take this so seriously that you say, I'm going to make sure that I make contact with the devil when I pray. I'm going to go head to head against his plans. I'm going to pray against his darkness. I'm going to pray against his work in my kids. I'm going to pray against his foot in my door. And by the way, I'm going to go and I'm going to limit those TV channels. I'm going to take away the, the phones. I'm going to take control back of what belongs to God. That'll hurt the devil. It may hurt your kids too, but they'll get over it. The point is this, put up a fight. People are worth it. Your kids, if you're not worried, if you're worried more about how your kids feel, if you're worried about whether they're going to walk out on you someday because they're upset at you, it's already going to happen. If you're not willing to take back your family and, and hurt the devil, the devil has already won. And that's why most Christian homes have no power. They've got no presence of Jesus Christ in their homes because the devil walks in, sits down, and runs everything. Fight. So fight I. Fight on your knees. Your kids may not be obeying you, but they will obey the Lord Jesus Christ when he puts his foot down. You better pray for them. You better pray like their life depends upon it. 
Don't just go through the motions. Fight. You don't work with revenge either. You overcome evil with good. Humble yourself. Maybe you need to humble yourself. Maybe too many of our homes have dads who've never said they're sorry, who don't know how to say they're sorry, who don't know how to humble themselves and serve their kids and serve their wife in front of their kids. And then he says, I keep under my body. I'm just bringing this. I'm going to finish this great thought. This is, I could spend an hour on this one truth. In America, we have a game called football. Now, it's kind of stupid. It ought to be called air ball because it's constantly being thrown, all right? Uh, but it's American football. And in American football, you have two teams of guys who are shaped like refrigerators. And this guy who's in front of you, you're on, you're, 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 you're on a line where the football is kept, and there's this guy called a quarterback and a lineman, all these strange terms there. They all go back a long time in history. But um, you're on that line, there's a guy in front of you, and he may be twice your size. Now, if you come and you meet him chest to chest, shoulder to shoulder, he's twice your size, you're the one going down. So what do you do? You know what I teach you to do? You get down, I'm not, I can't demonstrate because you don't have the whole visual here, but you go down and when they call, it's called break, and the, uh, uh, and the quarterback is throwing the ball, at that moment, that guy who may be six foot four and you're five foot three, and when that break of the ball takes place and everything's in motion, you go low. And when you go low, your whole purpose is to go and take him so that you flip him so that you knock him off balance and then you get beyond him and you go so that you're open there for the ball to get to. That's what they teach you in American football. Stupid little illustration, great truth. Here's the great truth. When our enemy is attacking, what does God say? Humble yourself. Go low. It trips him up. It actually, humble yourselves. The Bible says, uh, God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace. Grace is an empowerment to do whatever he asks you to do. He gives grace to the humble. So to keep under your body means that your body is humbled. That you, there's, there's so much here, I'm just going to say this. In simple, all right? You're not allowing yourself to do what everyone else is doing. I keep under my body. I am the one that picks up my body and gets it to do what it should do. I am in charge of whether I get up in the morning and read my Bible or not. I am under the body, picking it up and setting it in front of my Bible. I am in charge of what these eyes see. I am in charge of what this mouth says. I keep under my body. Even though I'm free to do as I please, I stop myself from doing what I please. I make myself do what is the better thing. I make my body do what it does not want to do. That includes throwing away the bottles of drink, throw away the cans and the pints that you're used to every day. That means getting rid of the channels that you've allowed yourself to slip into watching. That includes putting real limits on all your freedoms. Say, well, Pastor, it's not against the law. I don't care whether it's against the law. It's not good for you. It's not good for you at all. You need to carry that rebellious life of yours into the will of God, kicking and screaming. It's like a, your body's like a spoiled brat, and if that child is not obeying, what are you supposed to do with a child that is wanting its own way? You pick it up, you put it on your shoulder, and you take it out to the car and go home. And that's what you do with your body. And that is Christian maturity. Because your body may never grow up, 
but your determination does and your maturity does. Because verse 27 tells us what failure looks like. And it's our last thought. Look at the end of verse 27. Lest by any means, and the devil will use any means he can. When I have preached to others, when I have told others about freedom, when I've told them that it's great being a Christian, I myself should be a castaway. This is a terrifying thought, folks. A castaway is somebody, look, if, 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 uh, if you open up, if you go down and you get you a burger and you open up the bag and you open up the bag and the, and the burger is about six hours old and the grease has gotten clumped and it, it, it smells off, you throw it away, don't you? It's useless. It's a burger. Okay, it's got the ketchup on, it's got the onions, it's got the pickles, but it's useless and you cast it away, don't you? Because you wouldn't dare eat it. Do you want to be like that to Jesus? Being rejected as a servant, becoming unusable. Paul worried about not being used by Jesus Christ. Now nobody's rejected from going to heaven, not if you're saved. Uh, but you're rejected from approval by God, because you have a wasted life. Mark 8, 38 says this, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this generation, and it's an adulterous, he says, an adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed. If I'm around other people and I'm too ashamed of my relationship with Jesus Christ to ever talk to them about Jesus, Jesus says, you know, whenever you need something, I'll be too ashamed of talking about you before God. Can you, can you imagine telling people about the Son of God who died for them and the new life that they can have if they would just repent and believe it and then being exposed as someone whose life is a sham? Someone hires you to go to work at Tesco. You work eight hours, yet you do only what you want. You sit on your phone the entire eight hours. You never build anything. You never stock anything. You never make a sale. You never do what your employer asked you to do and what he was paying you to do. You just did whatever you wanted to do for the entire eight hours that day. And yet, during lunch break, you're bragging to one of your friends saying, man, it's great working here at Tesco. You ought to come and get a job here. Tell me, would you pay that man? Would you pay yourself? If that was you, would you pay somebody like that to continue to work that way at Tesco? No, you'd fire them. You know, God looks down on us. He says, you know, I saved you for a job. And yeah, you're free. You can do whatever you want, but I'm asking you to limit your freedom and to decide, you know, if not all the things that I want to do are good for me, and they're definitely not good for the lost. Weaker brethren, the unsaved, they're watching me. How I live matters. Yeah, I can go off and do things. I believe in eternal security, but I don't want to push it. Would you not be very upset with them working that way? Well, I know God's very upset with us. It ought to terrify us to be a castaway, somebody who's just, God just says, can't use you, and puts you aside. I've, I'm afraid a lot of people are like that. And you wonder why a lot of Christians are bitter, why they're grumpy, why they have no joy. You know why? Because they've never been used in service. They've never humbled themselves. They've never seen the joy that comes in ministering to others and losing their rights. As I said last week, I read of a lot of missionaries. I've read a lot of missionary stories, and most of them end in disaster. Uh, missionaries who went to Saudi Arabia, went to Iraq, 
Persia back in the days, 200 years ago, lost their lives six months after arriving because they were stoned. Missionaries going, uh, Jim Elliot going to the Amazon there, trying to win uh, uh, the cannibals there. Just got, off the, just got off the plane, surrounded by all of those natives there, the Indians there, the Amazonian Indians, and they speared him through, killed him right on the spot. His wife didn't know what happened to him, had to fly over and see all, see all the fighting that had happened and how they had dragged those bodies away. Took forever for them to go in there and get back in. And it was the wife, Jim Elliott's wife and the other wives, who went in there and risked their lives, giving the gospel to those same people who had killed their husbands. It ought to terrify us. You know what? Jim Elliott's got a crown in heaven. There are, there are people who are going to have rewards in heaven. The rest of us who are going to get there, we're going to be ashamed. Because all we worried about was our rights and, and our freedoms instead of souls. Folks, there is something far more terrifying than being useless. And that's being told by Jesus at the judgment, depart from me, I do not know you. I never knew you. And it'll be simply because you refuse to humble yourself and admit that you're a sinful man or woman. And you never cried unto Jesus Christ to forgive you and ask him to make you his child. He'll make you truly free. That'll be the time that you can start to live for him instead of only for yourself. You can try all you want. Before you get born again, you'll always fall back into your old patterns. But if you get saved, you, you have a whole new life. You can choose righteousness now. You can serve right things. Yeah, you won't be as free as everybody else, but you'll be freer.